This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about time pressure as a factor in our mental health with Oliver Berkman. And this is a theme that I'm really glad to get to cover because it was such a great discussion with him all around the perceptions we all have of time, you know, what it is to use time well in a 24 hours, in a week, in a lifetime, and all the sort of smoke and mirrors that can exist about how to live a perfect life, which is made up, or how to be perfectly efficient, which we sort of discussed a little bit in the episode of, is that even something you would want. You know, if you had a perfectly efficient life, where is the room for fun and spontaneity? And so this was a really fascinating topic to get into with particularly a journalist that spent so much of his career looking at productivity and various time-based solutions and hacks. You know, someone that could really get into the nitty-gritty of, okay, some of this stuff works, Some of this stuff is nonsense. Some of this actually zaps more of your time than it gives you. Yeah, I think it's a brilliant conversation to have and so far reaching, isn't it? You know, depending on your perspective and your experiences, all of that, with so much practical advice out there. And so many times you hear people talk about, you know, wake up an hour earlier so that you can get your meditation in and you can do that. And then you can do that. And, you know, this whole thing of life and how to succeed. And you can just go and watch TED Talks and there's millions of people talking about all these practical solutions. And then there's the other side of it where there's a whole camp of people who come at it from a completely kind of holistic spiritual bigger picture point of view and just seem to take things much easier and then of course like you said the spontaneity that comes with being able to be flexible I guess that sits in the middle the ideal place I guess would to be able to be flexible and kind of sit in both camps I think that's quite a hard thing for most people to do but I reckon that's that's the pinnacle that's what that's that's where I'm trying to get to Yeah, I think that's very true. And that's very much the perspective our guest comes from of he's looked at all these different things, explored many of them in a book he's written and found, okay, where are the compromises? Because actually those two extremes you described, neither of them really make sense. There can be a lot of the advice out there and the TED Talks and the like, which when you watch them, they seem really ideal and like, oh yeah, that does seem like a really perfect way to order your day. And then the reality hits you of, okay, well, waking up an hour every day is good in theory, but then what if my kids start waking up an hour early because they hear me shuffling around and then I'm dealing with them? Do you know what I mean? And he said about that, you know, when you've got a family, it's not just your routine anymore. And so a lot of that stuff is kind of too perfect and relies on you being the only variable. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there might be, you know, the sort of messages around eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired, you know, very much go with your body and, you know, have a very passive routine, which I can see the appeal of, but your boss that is wondering why you're late to work (laughs) might not have so much sympathy. Yeah. And when looking into research around this, it is quite limited. 
in terms of there's not been a huge amount looking at time pressures. And I think that's part of the reason why is it's so down to our perceptions. What, where would you even begin to study? How would you ever quantify what is a busy day or not? It very much depends who you ask. But what there is loads of research around is the impact of time in front of a screen and how that affects us. So one study in particular published with the US National Library of Health found that after one hour of screen use a day, any further hours of daily screen time were associated with lower psychological well-being, including less curiosity, lower self-control, more distractibility, more difficulty making friends, less emotional stability, being more difficult to care for. That one was particularly interesting (laughs) as a distinct one to irritability is maybe what I'd give as a synonym for that and inability to finish tasks. And you look at that and you think anything above one hour a day, those things start to be measurable. Is that not all of us nowadays, particularly on our Zoom working from home lives? But the way I'm choosing to interpret that is actually that's a good example of we can be really idealistic but there's these things out of side of our control we do live in a time where screens are a big part of our life and you have to work really hard for that not to be the case so actually that's a really good pitch for a lot of what we talk about in the episode over sort of taking some of the ideas of perfectionism and having a perfect day out of it And actually, a lot more of what we're taught as kids of doing your best. And when that's what we're coming from, having to use screens loads, but also they have such a big impact on us, then we shouldn't be putting such high expectations on ourselves to be perfect machine-like people. Wow, yeah, great point. I mean, I'm still replaying what you said about how to move with the conversation, if if I'm honest, Bob, because some of that, some of that study is quite really interesting and you can really see it and it's almost like like you said we're not moving backwards from screens at all so are we all just becoming more irritable as a human you know in 20 years are we just our levels of irritability like we know stress so it's interesting like you said that this research around that one hour plus screen time it's not going anywhere we we are on screens a lot more so actually some of the practical solutions about how to manage that and how to manage you know and even that really must get into the way of time listening to that my friend of mine her son is always on his computer in the evening now he gets good marks at school and he does like three activities three times a week however outside of that the guy is just in his room, he's 12 years old, on his computer all evening. And like, I'm not his parent, so, you know, there's, not, there's no judgment, but you do see some changes as well in behaviour, you know, forgetful distractions, not finishing tasks, some irritability and measuring it against, you know, school and educational outcomes and other activities that are physical that he does in the week. So it kind of justifies, well, then that's OK. Is is where we're at at the moment in between a bit of a rock and a hard place, you know, with how we're measuring that, because that's what people want. That's where we go to. We're on the screen, on our phones. We're addicted to screens. And is that having an impact on time and the pressures that other things that we need to do in our lives that we would have always done before? We've even got less time for because we're trying to get in five minutes for screen time or trying to get an hour in for screen time, you know? And I think you're exactly right there. We are between a rock and a hard place that we've got 
so much to navigate with our digital lives. And, you know, we have had a lot of practice of even recording this podcast through Zoom and the like, you know, over the how many months we're into the pandemic now. It's still harder work. It is still more exhausting than if we were able to sit in the same room consistently throughout. And then, you know, what happens? We finish up and then I speak to a friend on Zoom and it's more technology. And so you're right. We probably aren't in a position where we can say technology bad, you know, no technology good. And it's as simple as that. But I don't think any of this is that simple. And that's why I was glad to talk to someone who is so academic around this subject in terms of talking about the nuance of time pressures and some things are good but even that can be maladaptive you know he talks about examples where we can start off doing something that feels productive but we can go too far and then it's zapping our time and for a lot of people and I've definitely been guilty of this myself it can feel like the ideal efficient work life is to be working as many hours as possible and that's just simply not what efficiency means you know that's efficiency if work is the only thing in your life But of course it isn't. And so we have to always remember we're trying to manage our time and have a good routine and fit in all our priorities so that we can get them all done, not so we can spend maximum time at work and only prioritise one thing. That is so true. You know, my dad said to me once, if you could have anything in the world, what would it be? This is a few years ago. You know, what are you striving for? You know, and I started saying all of these things, you know, what do you want? And I was like, I want... I don't know, Dad. And he's like, no, come on, what is it that you want? What are you working for? What do you want? And I was like, well, I mean, it's like, come on, say anything. Just don't feel awkward to say anything. I was like, oh, well, okay, I mean, a holiday home would be nice. You know, maybe a bigger house. And, you know, obviously I said health first and all those things that you meant to say. But no, but I truly believe, obviously, above and beyond anything, health for my children, my families would be the ideal thing. But on top of that, come on, let's go for it. So I was naming these things, you know, holidays when I want. Because he said, OK, you have a holiday house. What are you going to What do you want it for? And I was like, well, what do you mean? He's got, you know, he's a bit of a coach. So he's going, come on. And I was like, OK, so I can go there and I can enjoy the holiday and time whenever I can get there, whenever I want. And he said, so really, if we think about all the things that you said, why do you want a bigger house? I can enjoy it. I can have friends over. We can have big dinner parties. I can have a huge garden all of those things. And he said, so actually what you're telling me is that you want time. You're telling me that you want time because without time, all of that shit that you've just mentioned, you'd be able to do absolutely nothing with, which is just like what you've just said, Bob. If you want, if you can work and be efficient and do 70 hours a week, well, that's great. You are super efficient if your whole life is just work. But of course it's not. And it's really stuck with me. And I think that's why you know, I finished work and it really did inspire me to, you know, set up my own business and, you know, think about it. And it was because we're having a bit of a coach, a bit of a worky call. But yeah, and it was because it, it really did make me think about the fact that, you know, we are, I shouldn't, we shouldn't be working to live. And if I can, you know, make decent money and do half the hours, would I prefer that? Or would I prefer to make double the money and have no time? And it's always been something that's been in my head and it's really stuck with me, you know. Yeah, and some there are some success stories, aren't they, if we want to call them that. Some people that say I worked my arse off until I was 50, then I retired on my millions and now I've got my whole retirement and I'm healthy and everything's perfect. I mean, there's probably not many of those, but there are people that maybe live like that, but not many. So, yeah, it really stuck with me. I think time is more precious than we think and something we should be aware of much more. Yeah. Nice one. Good on your dad. 
<laughs> Very good point. And I think that's so true. That's what a lot of this comes down to. We we need time to do the things that we love. And so we've always got to bear that in mind. I loved what you said as well about, you know, this idea of having the perfect efficiency in a week. And something that I feel like we're just starting to get more prevalent conversations around in society is having a balance that is beyond, you know, working full time. Like if I think of a lot of people I know where they have the best work-life balance, you know, they're maybe working four days a week. And I think it can be very easy for us to think whether, so for us being self-employed, you think, oh, I can't do less work. You know, things will fall yeah. apart because we, we've always got so much to do. And then for those in more standardized employment, then, you know, you think, well, then my income is, if I drop a day, I'm, I'm losing 20% of your income. But then the bit of the conversation that's often left out is when I think of the people that are working, maybe not full time, but even more hours, mm. how much money they're spending to kind of almost counterbalance that. And they're like, oh, well, I've got a horrible commute first thing in the morning, so I need to have, a, you know, a decent car. It's better to drive it than to be on a train. Or, you know, I have takeaways because I don't have time to make a meal. And, you know, that's more expensive. Or, you know, I, I have like a weekend getaway because I'm working all the time. And actually, I often see that. And I've done that myself when I've been flat out. And you make different choices. And you often go for the expensive or the quick or, you know, yeah. different options than you would otherwise. And so sometimes it doesn't actually work out as you think it will. Absolutely. And we were also looking into some tips for managing time pressure in terms of your mental health and found a few from Mind. And they've said that making some adjustments to the way you organise your time could help you feel more in control of any tasks you are facing and more able to handle pressure. And so here are some of the tips they've suggested beyond that. So identify your best time of day and do the important tasks that need the most energy and concentration at that time. For example, you might be a morning or an evening person. And you hear people use that phrase all the time, but I think we probably use that phrase more than we do anything about it. So that's a good reminder. Yeah, and I agree with that, though. If you can recognise yourself and understand a bit about who you are and how you like to work, which hopefully that's coming into play a lot more with organisations with the flexibility that the pandemic's brought about. You know, people working from home, we've just done some work around agile working in organisations and, you know, that is a key example of that, you know, let your employees, you know, understand your team, who people are, yourself with your health and all sorts and figure out when the best time is for you and you are more productive. They also talk about setting smaller and more achievable targets. As we know, when you're under a lot of pressure, it's easy to set yourself large targets that are often then unachievable. So this can make you feel more stressed. And if you don't reach them, you can then feel more disappointed and more frustrated and a bit like you failed. So yeah, even a small target, especially when we're thinking about mental health and the impact that time has on our mental health, just setting something small and achieving one small thing. If that's all you can do, it's something that you've done. It makes you feel good as opposed to just feeling overwhelmed with so much to do. Yeah, absolutely. And I know a lot of people in my life who do a very small task to start off their working day. And it's a similar mentality of get the first one crossed off and then you're like, OK, I've done one. <laughs> I've made some progress quickly. They've also mentioned varying your activities. So balance the interesting tasks with the more mundane ones and stressful tasks with those that you can find easier or do more calmly. 
and also make sure to take breaks. And, you know, common advice there, but stuff that we can forget about. And I try and do that. I even try and do that with balancing things off each other. So if I've got a mundane task that might be a bit busy, that's often when I have a podcast on the go because then I'm like learning about something new or I'm catching up on a favourite show whilst I'm doing laundry or something that otherwise would be a bit more boring without it. Yeah, and I'm the opposite. I'll just bang out all the shit in one go and then have a lovely afternoon of podcasts or shopping or all the things that I really want to do yeah and but that's how you like you said that's how you work sometimes you need the motivation of something that you're enjoying to get you through what you don't but then I guess I do most people would relate to what you've just said and I absolutely do in fact in that I went to the gym the other day which I hate doing like I love exercise you know what I do and I love sport and I would play sport every hour of every day for my fitness Going to the gym is just the worst thing. I hate working out alone. I hate it. It's so boring. So, and I didn't have my headphones and I, I literally nearly cried. I mean, it was a bit the time of the month. <laughs> I was a bit hormonal, Bob, but I literally nearly cried. And uh, Anthony was at home working and I, I, I texted him. I said, worst nightmare. And how dramatic is that? I know. And he was like, do you want me to bring them? And I was like, no, it's fine. I mean, we don't live far from the gym, so he was coming, so he don't get me wrong. He wasn't just going to, like, leave his job and, like, come across town to bring me my headphones. He was just going to nip around the corner. But there was a class starting, so I was like, it's fine, there's a class starting, I'll do a class. That's music, I'll do a class. But, yeah, so it's what you're saying, to me, running on the treadmill or doing weights or any kind of, like, gym work is so mundane that my best playlist would just keep me, keep me going. So, yeah. And then the last one they had was asking someone if they can help. So whether that's helping you with the task or whether that's just, you know, will you sit with me? I've got to do this annoying task and I might be less distracted <laughs> if I know someone else is there. I've definitely done that via coffee shops. I think that's a very modern thing that we do nowadays. We're like, I'll go and have the social pressure of strangers and sit with my, my laptop and I'll feel the need to look productive. Bobby, I do it all the time. It's my life. I love it. I know you do it too. We do it. We are that pe- those people. Also, we like stimulation and we're all home workers and we're on our own and we both like the hubble, the buzz of the city and the stimulation. I like hearing a little bit of noise. But that is another reason. You get stuff done, don't you? Go and you feel the pressure. If you're opening your laptop, what are you doing? Do not go fall into the trap of hitting YouTube or doing something that you shouldn't be. But it works. I do seem to get more done when I'm in a coffee shop. Yeah, which is strange. Do you know what I mean? Even if though I do it all the time, it's still kind of strange to me because you think that's a more distracting environment. But yeah. there's not other tasks. At home, there are things that need tidying. There's a yeah. beautiful cat that has other plans for my routine or whatever yeah. else. <laughs> I mean, she's currently gone to sleep, so uh, I'm scandalising her name unfairly at the moment. But you know, out in a coffee shop. I'm not going to just get up and be like, oh, I'm just going to start cleaning the counters. You just get on with your work. Yeah. (laughs) And so with all that said, we'll get into this episode with Oliver Berkman in a moment. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. My name's Oliver Berkman. I think I've probably always been, I think I was a pretty anxious child to some degree, not not in an acute way, but it was really when I got to 
university, I think that it became sort of a important part of my everyday experience. I think I was one of those kids who you, you don't really notice that you've built up this whole idea that you absolutely need to achieve in order to have peace of mind because you actually manage it, you know, all the way through primary and secondary school. But then you get to a context where you're running up against your edge. You know, you're, you're not guaranteed necessarily that you're going to sort of sail through with top marks. And, and that was when I really started to sort of, <laughs> for a while there, make myself sort of physically ill with anxiety and being totally convinced that I wasn't, uh, didn't have what it took to get the grades I, I thought I needed. Do you remember what that kind of escalation was like from feeling those first pangs of anxiety or like butterflies and how quickly that would develop in something very physical? For me, it was always and still sometimes today is is the the pit in the stomach, right? It's more a sort of constant companion than a, it's not a question of panic attacks. It's a question of sort of weight is always there. And I think I was probably, there's some unfortunate things happen, aren't there? Because I felt like this. And I was pretty miserable, especially for my last year at university, convinced that I would do terribly and that I needed to, and that this worry is somehow serving a purpose of, it feels like you're doing something right to, to worry because it feels like you're, you're sort of taking the thing seriously. And then I did get really incredibly good results in terms of the exam grades, right? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of a terrible lesson to learn, <laughs> which is if I make myself miserable, it seems to work. And I think a lot of my experience since then has been unlearning that connection between like if you really make yourself feel terrible then you'll get the outcomes it's largely not true and it may well have been that I got those grades in spite of the suffering (laughs) rather than uh, because of it but it sort of sets up a bad bad mental connection in your mind I think right and I think a lot of people will relate to that because when you're that in it the fears feel so all-encompassing that you think if I fail this exam that's going to blow up and that'll be my life then and so anything you can do to prevent that worst eventuality does feel productive. Whereas in reality, it may just be you sat at a desk, not doing the revision, but just going through things in your mind that won't happen. Right. Yes. I think worry is in general, I mean, anxiety has some specific meanings, but I think worry in general is just the act of a mind constantly trying to get a handle on the future to feel certain that things are going to go okay, or that you're going to meet whatever standards you feel you need to meet or you think the world needs to do in order to make you okay and never getting that assurance because of course the future is in the future and if you demand in the present that it tells you exactly what's going to happen <laughs> you, you'll you'll always know that you don't actually have that assurance and it's it's a matter of getting comfortable with that lack of control rather than imagining that you'll ever find it right and you also mentioned there about the idea of unpicking a lot of this maladaptive learning do you remember when that process started or maybe you became aware that this was even an issue you could do something about? I mean, I think it was there in the back of my mind almost from the moment I got my incredibly good undergraduate degree results and about a week later, it didn't seem like it had been worth the agony. You know, it's like, it's like the, the, the high of those kinds of things is so incredibly brief. So I think in a sort of two steps forward, one step back kind of way, that went on a while process of sort of seeing what was that way of being but I definitely also sort of had as I approached my late 30s and then into my 40s where I am now something that approximates what I think certainly Carl Jung meant by a midlife crisis which is not necessarily a sort of huge flamboyant thing where you buy sports cars and have affairs or things but just where 
you reach the end of certain ways of being are less and less productive for you. Also, you know, especially if you're a sort of productivity geek who writes a column for The Guardian about time management techniques and things, you start to realize that like this feeling that you're just about to get your life in working order and like tomorrow or next week or next month, everything's going to be working properly and you're going to be able to sort of meet any demand that comes in. Like after you feel like you've been on the verge of that for quite a few years, it becomes much harder to continue the illusion that that you're about to get there. And then you're sort of like, oh, I guess I better do the things that matter like right now instead of thinking that I'm going to achieve some kind of new state that's going to be able to do them fearlessly and brilliantly next month or next year because it never seems to happen. Yeah, and I think that's a very good way of putting a very common experience where there's almost like loads of micro versions of that through your life where you have these realizations of oh, I am who I am now. Like, we can try and be this perfect version of ourselves or get, you know, whatever it means to have your shit together. And then at certain points, you realise, like, oh, well, I thought I had to be a certain way to have this kind of job, but it looks like I'm doing it. Or at a certain age, I thought I had to be this kind of adult. It starts to come down and you realise at some points your parents didn't know as much about parenting as you thought. Your teachers were only a few years older than you when you were in secondary school. And you gradually, as you get older, these sort of illusions of grandeur fall. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are approaches, sort of old school approaches to depth psychology and child development that would say that really the whole process of growing up is when it goes well, it's of the kind of tyrannical dictator toddler who believes the world revolves around them and it's sort of appropriate that they should believe that in terms of, you know, how reliant they are on their caregivers. It's the sort of gradual coming down to earth from that position of infant sort of grandiosity. And, you know, it doesn't always go right and there are people around who are, remain as grandiose as they were as toddlers or people who people who sort of fall off in the other direction and, and feel like they totally lack self-worth if it if they aren't if they can't have that level of sort of control and centrality so yeah i mean i think what am i saying yeah i think you're right you know we're always sort of coming up against reality in different ways and and managing to accommodate ourselves to it mm. so that you can sort of go forward and do stuff create things and be generative and grow which always only comes from actually sort of being in contact with reality rather than putting it off into fantasies of you know one day having it all together yeah. Yeah, well, at some point, you just have to get on with your life and be like, I'm adult enough. (laughs) I have enough safety net, enough skills, and you've got to get on with it. And I think usually you have to learn that quite a few times. And perhaps like getting around middle age is where it's like, okay, now it's really crunch time because you start to have the scary thoughts of could I be nearer to one end than the other? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Also, just the perspective. I mean, you mentioned this. It's like, I feel like my parents were basically great parents and I have got all sorts of, I can go deep into ways, the way they raised me led me to the aspects of my life that I struggle with and I can also go in the positive direction. But as someone who became a parent in his early 40s, it just blows my mind to think of what a terrible parent I would have been if I'd had children at the age my parents had, me and my sister. I mean, it's just like, it really puts it in all into perspective when you have this sort of distance and you've you've had a bit of career 
and then you're turning to these other aspects of life. You feel a new level of empathy for like 20-somethings trying to raise kids. I would have been a disaster, I think. I mean, some people are totally born for it and are brilliant parents in their 20s. But you begin to see all the stages of life that you've been through so far and feel a lot more empathy for people going through them. Yeah, I think that's very true. And yeah, more understanding of the comparisons of yourself and, you know, who you are compared to other people, which can, yeah, can definitely give you empathy. Sometimes it means you see somebody having kids and you think, I don't know if you are ready. Right. There's that too. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And so as you delved into the world of like productivity and became really very academic at how different hacks could potentially improve your life, improve your work, what sort of things did you start to learn? And did you find there were sort of illusions you then still had to deal with of, okay, there'll be some perfect hack out there and that'll give me two hours extra in my day. And and really, we all have the same 24 hours. Yeah, I mean, I think there are certainly things that work as well as things that don't work. But for me, the most helpful way to think about this whole field of things you could integrate into your life to use time better, it's to do with whether they help you confront the situation of finitude and limitation in which all humans find themselves, right? With limited amount of time and a limited capacity to control how that time unfolds or to plan to know what's coming in the future or whether you'll have the skills for a job or whether other people will go along with your wishes. A technique can either sort of gently bring you into confrontation with that reality, which is where the rubber hits the road and where you can start to sort of make your contribution in the world, or whether, and I think a lot of it does this, it functions primarily as a sort of enabler of emotional avoidance, right? So it helps you carry on believing that one day when you finally implemented this system and you've found some mysterious inner additional reserve of self-discipline that you're apparently going to find somewhere, even though you've never been that self-disciplined any day of your life today, that eventually you're going to sort of get to be in control, get to master your time. And an awful lot of it does the latter, I think. An awful lot of it essentially functions to allow you to stay deluded about your limitations. And I think the really important thing I'd want to sort of try to get across about that is confronting your limitations instead to whatever degree you're up to it is not a council of despair, right? It's not about saying, hey, we don't have much time. It's all pointless anyway. Mm-hmm. Let's just resign ourselves to it. It's like, no, confronting those limitations is exactly how you actually move into a really creative, generative relationship with life and do the work that you were dreaming of or, you know, find the kind of relationship that fulfills and sustains you. And it's constantly chasing that sort of myth of limitlessness and control that's the one that sort of gradually drains your life of all the, the stuff that matters to you the most and leaves you sort of very, very busy, but on things that don't seem to matter to you. So I, I think it's difficult and it's uncomfortable, but it is ultimately really empowering. because It's all about sort of autonomy in a way, right? Not necessarily solo autonomy, but it's like being an actor in the world instead of sort of climbing up a mountainside that is covered in grease, so you're never going to get to the top. That was a poor image, but... You know, <laughs> I know what you mean, though, and I think it is very easy to get hooked on a lot of that, of thinking, well, if I just learn enough about productivity, I'll find some kind of magic answer, I'll figure everything out. And I've definitely seen this with plenty of people, myself included at times, where you lose sight of what the goal should actually be, of like, we should be doing this so that we can have more time off or time with the people that we love 
or time to like work on ourselves outside of our work, for example. And you can get so caught up in this idea of perfect productivity that you leave out all the things you're meant to be doing it for. Yes, yes. And that makes me, absolutely, that makes me think of, you know, another way of thinking of this, which is that it, it's all about instrumentalizing time. It's all about using time now for some future purpose. And that's not bad in itself. You can't get through life without instrumentalizing time. You know, you don't, most people do not load or empty the dishwasher out of the sheer joy of loading or emptying the dishwasher. They do it for a future goal. But if you invest too heavily in that kind of using, using, using time as well as you possibly can, it does have this effect that like the only value of any moment is some future point. And obviously that's kind of, in the end, deeply sort of perverse when it comes to trying to build a meaningful life because you're, you're, you're missing all the moments you ever actually get in favor of hypothetically getting to lean back smugly on your deathbed and say you, you got it right. But even if you did, that would only be for a minute. So, it, you know, it's partly to do with things like you raise, you know, people do tend to get enmeshed in their jobs versus their relationships, all part of the system that we live in. But in a way, it's also just to do with future versus the present. And even if your work is a central part of your life, and like it is a central part of my life, it's not the only one, but it, I, I certainly don't buy into myself the attitude that like, wouldn't it be great if I could do almost none of it? But even within work, I'd rather be focused on some fulfillment in the moment of the work I'm doing instead of always leading up to some future, some alleged future moment of truth. And that, I think, ties in very well with feelings around perfectionism that are so pervasive in society. You know, this idea that we have to have some kind of perfect life and it's also got to be very Instagram ready and all the rest of it. And to use your dishwasher analogy, you can very easily see how that becomes deranged quite quickly because maximum efficiency with emptying the dishwasher may start off with doing it now rather than later, something simple. But if you go too far with it, you'll end up building a new dishwasher. And then you've lost, (laughs) you know, however many weeks that takes. Absolutely. And then also the other thing is like, uh, when it comes to all these perfectionistic goals, it's like, it's not just that you don't need to be perfect in some given area for life to work perfectly well, but that it's kind of literally impossible. I think that's another Mm -hmm. thing I'm always like, amazed to remember, but also trying to communicate to other people. We're talking about impossible goals here, right? The, The inner urge that makes you want to reshape your life so that you resemble your preferred Instagram influencer, like afflict that Instagram influencer too, because there is no end to the quest for perfection. I think that's important to see because it can be really liberating to understand. It's not that there are some perfect people and you'll be better off if you, if you can come to terms with the fact that you're not one of them. It's that this is like trying to make two plus two add up to seven, right? It's just not a thing that humans can do. So yeah, when people talk about how it's important to be willing to fail and all these things, I'm always wanting to say, well, yes, but a more powerful thing to think about is that like by the standards of perfection, you've already failed. That's over. That ship has sailed. It's not in the gift of human beings to achieve these things. And to me, I feel like my shoulders fall and a huge weight is lifted from me when I remember that. It's like, no, no, no nobody can do this. So you can... I, th- I think that's a really that great way. way of looking at it, yeah, because we are so encouraged to get familiar and comfortable with failure, and perhaps a more straightforward route would be to take some of the weight out of what that failure means. You know, like when you were talking about right, right. your fear around exams and all the impact you thought that would have on your life, and actually, you know, then a few weeks later, you're like, was was it worth it, that level of fear? Mm. You know, and actually, it's like the, the fear is disproportionate 
becoming perfect at mastering that fear seems like a longer route round. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, just to just to be sort of very mildly combative in the context of this podcast, I sometimes think literally nobody can achieve systematically impossible things. And we live in a culture and especially an economy, I think, that pushes the message that we can. And it may be especially difficult to deal with that for people with acute kinds of mental suffering. But there is a kind of solidarity in that universality. Like nobody ever found the the hack for the human condition. Does that make sense? I kind of, I do want to make sure that the folk, some of the focus stays on this idea that like the disease is being born a human being in some, in some sense. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. I guess my version of that is perhaps that I never want to shy away too much from the reality, which is mental illness is really tough. It is right. tough in different ways for different people. And that is the reality. And so sometimes... Yeah. I do have people which to me is just a kind of intellectualizing of stigma who will argue against certain things like the term mental illness of like, well, you know, that sounds like something that people would stigmatize against. Could we call it mental health spectrum or something? You know, do we need to keep rebranding things because they might be stigmatized against? And I think we could do that until the end of time, you know, until we lose every word we've got. And so absolutely some terms can go, but there is an important distinction with a lot of them as well. There is a difference between talking about mental health and mental illness. And so I don't want to lose one of those terms. And so I agree. I guess I may be coming at it from a different point of view that you're saying, actually, a lot of this is very much a reflection of humanity. And so that's an angle to undermine the stigma of a lot of things that we go through our reactions to circumstances. And I guess I'm saying also, sorry, I'm trying to think how to phrase it because you've you've thrown me a curveball with the way you've described it. I think we're coming at the same thing from other directions. You're saying that a lot of this stuff is natural reactions to the human condition. And I'm saying there's stigma and there shouldn't be because of the same reason, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I think so. I think so. And it's reminding me of, you know, quite often when I write about anxiety, I'm writing about the sort of colloquial understanding of that word or even the sort of philosophical understanding of that word in Kierkegaard and all this stuff. And I do get some sort of occasional pushback from people with anxiety disorder diagnoses who who want to sort of keep that as a separate concept. And I think, you know, I'm not trying to say it's all just the same. I think it's very important to hold on to this duality, right? To say that, yeah, absolutely, something is meant by a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder. It's not just life is tough for everyone. At the same time, there is something meaningfully called anxiety that is sort of knitted in to being human, especially to being human at this point in history. And for me, anyway, there is a lot of solace in the idea that there is a universal aspect to this, right? That nobody has their shit together by the standard that we're invoking here, the, perfect, the perfectionistic standard and anything could happen at any moment to anybody and that's a pretty hard thing to take but it's a little easier to take when you realize that literally everyone you see on the streets or on the tv is in the same boat no i think that's very true and you're right that it can be tricky at times to think there are elements of the condition i'm experiencing that are very relatable and that can be positive in terms of people understanding but equally that can be negative in terms of people minimalizing your experience and 
I do think we need to get better at some of that. And I think part of it does still come into that perfectionism you're talking about and the comparison culture that I think social media in particular is often pointed at as something exacerbating that. And even sometimes I get it with guests I talk about on the show where they'll tell me something really raw and honest and I really emotionally connect with it. And then they'll almost kind of hear themselves. And I don't know if it's partly Britishness or what it is and be like, oh, but some people have it worse. And then they shut it back down. And as someone that very much works on my empathy muscles, it almost is an affront to me as well then because I'm like, oh, but that like that was so real what you just said. And now you're like, oh, I'm just going to toss it it away. And I think there's a way that I look at it, which is like I could say, well, you can look at that both ways. Equally, there's somebody that has it easier and neither of them are a direct influence on your experience. So if we could do a little bit less comparing, then maybe there would be less problems of people thinking that all the time when we use the word anxiety, we mean only one thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, loop back a little bit to timekeeping and trying to figure out some of the pressures you were feeling and getting older and feeling more of some pressures, less of others. What kind of things do concern you nowadays in terms of time? I mean, I think for me, what I have come to understand, at least intellectually, and then it's a sort of question of bringing that intellectual understanding into daily life, is that all of this in some way, everything, even when it's sitting and writing alone at a desk, has to do with relationship. So it's not only relationships to individual people, although that is totally a big part of it, but it's this idea that, I think something a lot of younger adults are on some level trying to do, maybe it's young men especially, are trying to be in control, not necessarily of other people, but just of themselves and their own lives to such a degree that it sort of squelches out all the places that fulfillment comes from. So, you know, in a way, most obviously that manifests, and as it did for me, you know, a bunch of years ago in sort of commitment phobia in relationships. But it's also there in kind of creative writing or something, right? Because you have got to sort of, enter into a relationship with your unconscious, you know, to do writing well. I'm now a parent. You've certainly got to understand time spent with a four-year-old as relational rather than you'll soon run into difficulties. It's that sort of move of allowing yourself to relate in a sort of relative, relativized world where you don't need to either hold yourself back nor do you need to sort of dominate and make sure everything goes according to plan you sort of retain a center of gravity, you're still a kind of person doing things in the world, but you're doing it in relation with reality. And I think that's all I'm really ultimately saying when I talk about embracing limitation. Now, I could get a bit more specific. I could say that, you know, I've, I've moved away from ways of managing my work. Obviously, I have a very flexible schedule. It's kind of up to me, which is a blessing and a curse. But uh, I've moved away from the, the kinds of approaches to my daily time that involve setting very ambitious goals and then trying to force them into reality through their sheer ambitiousness, you know, sort of like, it will be impossible to do this. And that's exactly why I'm going to be so inspired to do it. And more for a sort of, a sort of quieter approach that uses techniques like time boxing, right? Where you say, okay, these are the hours that I have available today to dig the soil in the garden, metaphorically speaking. So that sort of dictates that there will be choices to be made and things that I definitely won't get around to. And And I write in the book a bit about, you know, the sort of terrible appeal of clearing the decks and feeling like you're always going, you've got to sort of get all the little stuff out of the way until you get around to the important stuff. 
because it doesn't feel like procrastination. It feels like you're being very dutiful and vir virtuous and diligent when you're sort of dealing with all your emails, dealing with the bills to pay. But it, for various reasons, it's in the nature of that kind of work and of the culture that we're in now that all that will happen if you get incredibly efficient at doing that is that you get more of it. And, <laughs> and so you sort of actually need to be able to sort of contain the discomfort that comes from saying, you know what, I'm going to spend the first two hours of today doing the thing that actually matters the most to me or matters the most within the context of my job, perhaps. Even though I know there's 20 things piling up in my inbox and someone's mad at me somewhere and I'm not getting around to something else that I said I'd do, you have to sort of develop a certain kind of muscle for being okay with all the ways in which you're not ticking every box. Otherwise, you won't even tick the ones that really count the most to you. But I certainly haven't like, worked this out. Like I'm consistently tormented by <laughs> sort of the feeling that I ought to be spending more time at work, but also ought to be spending more time with my son than I am now. And like, I'm not really doing anything else in my life apart from sleeping and like shaving. So it's kind of not going to happen, right? It's not going to happen that I'm going to both add three hours to my work day and add three hours to my uh, time with my son. And, and right now, for various logistical reasons to do with uh, moving around, I'm going to be not in the same place as my son and therefore effectively freed from family daily parenting duties for more than four weeks. I'm mainly dreading it because I'm going to miss him a lot and I feel bad for my wife who will be doing 100% of the parenting. But I also still have a fantasy that I'm going to be more productive than I've ever been in the history of the world ever <laughs> over these weeks. And the difference is now that I can already see over that fantasy to the fact that I'm, that's just not going to happen. I mean, come on. It's not that I'm ever completely through the delusion that one day I'm going to become the perfectly optimized superhuman. But you can sort of say, oh yeah, I'm doing that thing again. Yeah, and that makes it all a bit more livable. <laughs> I, I think that's much more achievable as well. Like, I don't think we can ever shed these kind of delusions, particularly when they're so societally ingrained. And instead, if we can find ways to take some of the power out of them, like we said about perfectionism, yeah. like we said about fear of failure. And yeah. you've reminded me of one that definitely is something I continue to have to work on, which is busyness, feeling productive. And therefore, you do whatever can yes, keep you busy. You, right, right. Things like emails can be a very good example of that, where once you have a big enough inbox, there are always ones that you could answer, but probably don't need to. So you can lose as much time as you want to yeah. emails. You could potentially keep emailing back and forth with certain people forever, <laughs> like yeah. endless thank yous back yeah. and forth. And it can feel productive and we romanticize busyness, I think, a lot as people. And someone says they're really busy and they're really tired and you're sort of like, <laughs> well, me too. And that's yes, good. Right, and you, right, At right. least you're busy. Like how often do we use the phrase, at least you're busy in the pandemic? And <laughs> actually, this is many parts of this have been a really good time to not be busy and have some yeah. free time. But we could be so hooked on this. And I think you've given a great way of countering that, of start off with the task that's really important because some of these little ones can still add up to zapping all your time if you let them. Right. And just accept that you're going to feel tormented a little bit by that, the, the thought of the undone task. And then I think the other thing that you know we're both pointing to here is like, I think the ability to laugh at yourself a bit about falling into <laughs> those patterns is just absolutely priceless. I really do think there's something very deep and important about the stance implied by humor, by being able to see that you're doing your ridiculous thing again. And it's really empowering, I find. It's, I suppose it's dicey territory because in the 
topic of mental health and mental illness stigma, both laughing at other people and laughing in a sort of mocking way at yourself can be very negative <laughs> things. But like laughing in that sort of like, oh, there I go again, being a human being way, I think is just a really, really powerful stance to be able to hang on to. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of that comes down to awareness. There's a massive difference between sort of ridiculing yourself in a way of my anxiety is like this and I'm an idiot for it versus, oh, here I go again with a spiral. Let's take a step back and find the humour in it. You know, and I think a lot of that is where you're at in your head and what amount of support and self-reflection and self-esteem you've been able to acquire. And I guess that, you know, goes both ways in terms of the self-stigma, but also how we treat others. You know, if we can find the empathy and the understanding, then that's a safer position to make light of something than that thing's ridiculous and I don't understand it. Far more likely to be offensive. Yes, generally speaking, I'm not uh, an advocate of finding ways to laugh at other people's uh, mental mental health (laughs) issues. I think that's probably not, that's probably not a a super constructive thing to be doing, but, but the sort of, the way of laughing at one's own that that comes from a position of sort of slightly world weary knowledge of your own issues can be very empowering i think ultimately because it makes it less of a it makes it less agonizing and tormenting that they haven't you haven't managed to get rid of them entirely mm-hmm. and whilst you're navigating all of these conflicting pulls on your time what kind of things do you do to keep any kind of anxiety that might come back in at bay or any kind of fear around time and how much we've all got i mean i do do a little bit of meditation but not as much as i feel i should so then you're back into a different <laughs> psychodrama then we um, need a strategy I, for that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> two things spring to mind i mean one is i really do one thing one habit that i do have is my own version anyway of morning pages you know writing in a journal for until i've covered three sort of a5 sides of a of a narrow lined notebook some people use that and they're actually doing like creative writing and stories and things. I, I'm, I'm just sort of generally chewing over issues in life. And there's, there's something very powerful about that just because it's sort of a, it, it's almost like a stopper right in the beginning of the morning. It doesn't always work these days with a kid. But if you can get sort of 45 minutes, which is a large chunk of time, just when you're about to get up and charge out of the gate in the quest for this sort of perfect productivity, you sort of stop at that point and like, write like percolate let let things metabolize i find that free writing in that way incredibly powerful yeah and i think there's something to be said for getting into that habit of doing something where there isn't a set goal or a set answer it should hopefully desensitize you to some of those pressures to right if every time there's an issue you have to figure it out otherwise what we panic you know, what are the other options? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And there's something very powerful as well about saying, like, I'm going to get to the end of the three pages. Not necessarily, you know, mm-hmm. some days I don't, whatever, but not in a kind of self-combating way, but just like, that's my job. And then the other sort of anti-anxiety technique for just sort of keeping going with the day in times of stress is just any sort of technique that sort of radically narrows the time horizons seems to me to be very useful so one that crops up in a number of different people's work and it sounds someone who's not stuck in a rut it will always sound a bit silly but I think it's incredibly powerful is to like get a notebook or a sheet of paper write down one small thing that you're going to do do it cross it out and write the next one on the next line and repeat you know just literally bring things down to what is one thing that I could do and have the motivation to do that is worth doing right now and to sort of place it on to a separate 
shelf in your mind the fact that there may be an infinity of other things that on some level you ought to be doing. Yeah, I think that's a really good one as well. And certainly I've had levels of where my depression has been bad enough that, yeah, you do think you're a write-off. And so even something as straightforward and sometimes the, th- the things that work are the things that are simple and we can get cynical about them. But if you can get to the end of a day and at least have a list of things that you've done yeah. on a bad day, that's one way of being like, okay, well, I'm clearly not totally useless. There's clearly something mm. I can do. Yeah, I think that can be handy. Well, thank you for sharing that. And if people want to hear more of your insights around time and all its complications, you've got a wonderful book, which even is named related to how much time we have, just to not stress people out. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's called it's called four thousand weeks, which is the average length of the it's an it's an eighty year life approximately expressed in weeks. I'm a little bit concerned that this title is going to get people's attention, but then just freak them out so much that they run away and open a different tab on their browser or leave the bookstore. My hope over the course of the book is to see that like turning towards that fact is not a cause of panic. It's not a cause of even trying to sort of desperately go through the rest of your life seizing the day and like going base jumping every weekend to make sure that you really like like lived or anything like that there's actually something very sort of beautiful and liberating about saying okay well there are these limits and i'm not going to change the limits both the limits of control and the limits of amount of time so i can like relax that whole struggle to some extent and just turn to doing a few things that are possible and meaningful and hopefully make the world a microscopically better place so it is liberating but maybe not from the three words of the title (laughs) (laughs) yeah I guess that's your perspective on it for me because I'd never done the maths that seemed like quite a lot of weeks you know and therefore oh interesting for me it didn't seem too bad and I thought maybe if I can make a thousand of those weeks half decent then you know a thousand good weeks in a lifetime seems pretty good irrespective of whether or not the maths would support that it sounds like enough good right Hey, I'm very, very pleased if the number makes make sounds like a plentiful amount. It might be, it might be, or the difference in our ages might have something to do with this. But I think, yeah, great. That's a that's a wonderful reaction too. And I think you know, in a way, that that is what I was saying, but approached through a different mode. It's like, okay, you can roll up your sleeves and do something with this, you know. Yeah. And the fact is that you could do that even if it was one week or or ten weeks. Although the the, the psychological challenge would be so much harder. Like. You've got a little bit of time. In fact, you never get more than the moment that you have right now because you have no idea what's coming in the future. And that's all you can work with, but it's also all you need to work with. So you can sort of at least let go a little bit of sort of the the things you think you need to do to gain control over the whole of the rest of your future because you don't have that control and none of us do. So, (laughs) Yes, very well said and thinking about some of the conversations we've had on the limitations of being human I'm thinking that's probably what this comes down to that 4,000 of anything sounds like a lot and so I think I'll take 4,000 sooner than I'll take 80 even if they are the same thing. <laughs> okay great brilliant I'm, uh, I'm so pleased at that reaction. All right so we'll wrap up there then. People at the moment, as of recording this, can pre-order the book. I'm assuming everywhere good books are sold because you have a really great publisher. And when does it come out? It comes out in the UK on August the 26th. And yes, let me sneak in that pre-orders make a real difference to an author. And if you want to be exceptionally nice to me, then pre-order it. But anyway, I'm very happy for anyone to encounter it in any way, really. <laughs> there you go. Book it now. <laughs>
<laughs> get it, pre-order it, you'll forget about it, and then you'll have a surprise on your doorstep because that's how it yeah. works for me. <laughs> All right, thanks so much. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support. Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday. And remember, you are enough.